This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Princeton Theological Seminary was founded in 1812 in order to train men for pastoral ministry in the Presbyterian Church. Within a century of her founding, however, those features that had helped to make old Princeton a bulwark of Reformed Orthodoxy had been weakened. The Presbyterian Church was broadening theologically, and those leading that movement wanted Princeton to fall in line. So, in 1929, the seminary was formally reorganized. In protest, several members of the faculty resigned to form Westminster Theological Seminary. Few institutions are as important to the identity, theology, and piety of confessional American Presbyterians than Old Princeton, and few figures as central to that story as Charles Hodge. When we think about the roots and influences upon Hodge and Old Princeton, the first thing that scholars usually mention is a philosophy known as common-sense realism. And some scholars have left the impression that it was a philosophy, not theology and scripture, that was running the show at Old Princeton. That suggestion has been challenged by a few scholars, including today's guest. Nevertheless, we do not often think about his time in Germany and how that influenced his study of Scripture and his theology. Dr. Annetta Aubert is a historian and theologian specializing in the study of 19th century Protestant theology. She's an adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. She holds a Ph.D. in historical theology with a concentration on transatlantic religion, and she has also received advanced degrees in systematic theology and church history. She has served as a research fellow at the Craig Center and is an associate scholar of the Mercersburg Research Fellowship. Her current research focuses on the influences of German theological ideas on American divinity schools, and she's working on a new book on transatlantic religion with one of our graduates and is editing the collected works of J. Gresham Machen. She's author of The German Roots of American 19th Century Theology, published by Oxford University Press and other writings on modern theology. Hi, Annette. And welcome to Office Hours. Hello. It is a great pleasure to be here in San Diego and to enjoy wonderful creation and sunshine. <laughs> well, it is nice. The weather has turned very nice just in time for your visit. So, Thank you for having me. We are happy to have you on campus. We are glad to have you speaking to us yesterday. And it's good to have you here to be able to talk about your work. So first of all, tell us about yourself. How did you become interested in 19th century German thought, and then its connection to Reformed theology. Uh, it all began during my PhD study times. I took a PhD seminar at Princeton Seminary on Friedrich Schleiermacher. And afterwards, I was doing some independent studies on Mercer's book, in particular John Nevin. And through my reading of Nevin, I was observing some of these German-American connections and noticed that Mercer's book was strongly influenced by German ideas. And then I was comparing Nevin and Hodge and realized that Hodge was also drawing on some German sources, but from the opposite spectrum. Nevin was more attracted to Schleiermacher in the mediating school, while Hodge was dealing more with Hengstenberg and some other pietistic scholars. All right, so you've used a bunch of important terms that we need to come to understand, so we want to explore that. 
a major goal of your book seems to be to illumine the theology and the piety of Charles Hodge by considering his interaction with both Orthodox theologians in Germany, for example, Hengstenberg, and also mediating German theologians. And that opens up a variety of questions. And the first question is, why is Charles Hodge getting so much attention these days? Yours is the third major piece of work on Hodge, and we've had two other recent books on Hodge. Because I remember as a young Reformed person in the 1980s, and nobody was talking about Charles Hodge, and now we're discussing him. What what happened? Yeah, that's right. George Martin, the leading American church historian, indicated maybe two decades ago there is hardly any research done in general on 19th century American religion. And in the recent years, there has been almost a renaissance on old Princeton studies and in particular Charles Hodge. So you have some kind of a new interest in general in 19th century studies and in particular Charles Hodge. And why Charles Hodge? I think Charles Hodge was one of the leading 19th century American theologians. Philip Schaff described him as the shining light in American religion. So he was a key figure in defending Calvinistic orthodoxy. And I think he was one of the greatest scholars in 19th century America. Interesting. So the neglect that he suffered for so long really wasn't due to a lack of inherent value in his work, but perhaps to other questions, other issues, other matters. Other matters. And I think one issue is related to a famous essay written by Sidney Armstrong in 1955, who basically presented Hodge in a more critical light, describing him as a rationalist arguing that his anthropology was not based on Calvin, but on Scottish common sense realism. And since then, scholarship kind of tended to have a more negative reading of Hodge and perhaps also kind of believed that everything is said about Hodge. Once that tag was made, that association between Hodge and common sense realism, it gave people an opportunity not even to read him, just to sort of dismiss him. Exactly. And, and, and of course, behind all of that is the growing influence of a certain Swiss Reformed theologian, Karl Barth, who had changed the landscape considerably in the 20th century. So that the moment it was suggested that Hodge wasn't really very biblical in his theology, the Bardians could say, well, we're interested in being biblical, right? And they're pioneering or at least uh, advocating, you know, biblical theology and asking questions about the biblical view of this, the biblical view of that, which are all valid questions, but it enabled them to sort of dismiss Hodge as a quaint, antique relic of a bygone age. Yeah, unfortunately, he was dismissed, and he was also kind of considered to be in discontinuity with Calvin, since he kind of was described as a rationalist. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And that's the other part of the picture, isn't it? This theory that came to dominate the way people thought by the middle of the 20th century, Calvin became the be-all and end-all of Reformed theology. So anybody who could be suggested or implied to be out of sync with Calvin was not somebody that we wanted to have anything to do with. All right. Well, that's helpful. I appreciate that. So we know about Hodge's time in the States. The listener might not know about Hodge's experience in Germany. Tell us a little bit about his trip to Germany, some of the people with whom he studied, and what effect that had on him. 
So what happened? Hodge realized that he lacked some credentials to continue his teaching at Princeton. So he decided to continue to study with some of the top scholars in Europe. And he was actually studying first in France. And then he continued his studies in 1827 to 1828 in first the University of Halle and then the University of Berlin. And it was during this time that he encountered August Tollock. He is kind of considered a neo-pietist. Okay, and let's define our terms in case the listener isn't familiar. When you say pietist, what do you mean? You don't just mean somebody who believes the Bible and loves Jesus. You mean more than that. Pietism is actually a movement that emerged within Lutheranism in the 17th century. It was kind of a renewal movement, and it was, some scholars would say, arguing against Lutheran orthodoxy, and it kind of had three characteristics. It was emphasizing regeneration, piety, and millennialism. And other people add things like social activism. Yeah, and they kind of are involved in social issues as well. So what, what matters for the pietist then is... And the listeners should understand that the original pietists tended to be actually themselves fairly orthodox, but they were so interested in your personal spiritual state and your experience, your personal experience of the risen Christ, sort of an immediate encounter, if you will, of the risen Christ, that it made it possible for the objective truth to be set aside and still be a pietist. And so Tullock is one of these so-called mediating theologians between Schleiermacher and orthodoxy. Yeah, you can say it like this. That's correct. But he was also influential in re-editing Calvin's work. And he kind of wrote some influential evangelical commentaries. And he was a pioneer in this field. So he's kind of, you rightly said, a mediating figure. He was kind of mediating between Schleiermacher and yeah, some of these pietistic ideas. So and he was part of the revival movement, but he was not confessional. This is important to say. This is interesting. So you're painting a picture of Europe in which there are people like Schleiermacher, and we haven't really discussed him. We'll get to him in a moment. But he represents one pole. Schleiermacher, at least as I read him, wants to redefine Christianity pretty radically as an experience. And he's not really very interested in what we traditionally thought of as Christianity. And on the other hand, you've got Orthodox people like Hodge, and in between, you've got figures like Tollock and others who are in the midst of a kind of Europe-wide spiritual revival. And so we know about American revivals, right? We talk about the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. But tell us what's happening spiritually relative to this Swiss revival movement that spreads across Europe in the early 19th century. So what you have in Germany, there was yeah, kind of what I indicated, a neo-pietistic movement. There was kind of an awakening mm -hmm. and there were some kind of especially even the politicians, they were closely aligned with pietistic figures. So what happened then, someone like Toller could actually teach at the University of Halle and Hengstenberg at the University of Berlin since they were supported by some of the princes of the time. Which is remarkable if you think about today, you know, think about somebody who is relatively orthodox. Orthodox being appointed by the government in major university educational institutions and having significant influence then. 
you know, in our setting, that's hard to imagine because most of the figures who dominate our universities are not associated with anything like Christian orthodoxy. But that was somewhat even exceptional in their own time, right? Because there were figures like Gesenius who were lecturing in the universities, undermining the very credibility of Holy Scripture. And Hodge heard him lecture as well, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there were some major conflicts going on then also with Tarlock and Gesenius and Wegscheider. And these folks are on different sides of arguments about the nature of the faith, the truth of the scriptures, the reliability of the scriptures. And so Hodge is in Germany for two years? No, it was one year, two semesters. Okay, one year, two semesters. So his family is at home and he leaves them behind to live with family, goes to Germany. And what does he make of this experience of Gesenius and Hengstenberg and Wegscheider and the others that he's hearing? I think what happened, it's on one side, It strengthened his own orthodoxy, but it helped him also to see the dangers of rationalistic divinity. And I think much of his work, what he did in his systematic work when he formulated his introduction, was actually against the rationalists and mystics that he encountered in Germany. So there was a double purpose for his visit. First, to get educated under this top scholar us, and secondly, to protect his own orthodoxy. One of the facets of Hodge's life with which people may not be familiar is that he was a biblical scholar of the first rank. We think of him as a systematic theologian, but that work actually was published anyway relatively late. It was in his 70s, yeah. Exactly. So 1872 or so yeah. it comes out. But for a lot of his life, What's he actually doing in the classroom? In the classroom, he was actually teaching New Testament studies, and his main focus was on biblical studies. And so he's lecturing on the New Testament and interacting with the biblical text. And his first work was on biblical literature. This was published in 1822. And so he's a biblical scholar. Yeah, and this is where he actually has nothing to do with philosophy, but really deals with exegesis and doctrinal issues. So when we think about Hodge and common sense realism and alleged rationalism, we have to temper all of those comments with the knowledge that he's actually seriously interacting with Scripture. And the listener, if he wants, can still read Hodge's commentaries on Romans and Ephesians and, I believe, 1 Corinthians. First and second. First and second. And I believe that they are the backbone for his theology. It's kind of yeah important to see this correlation. And he comes here very close to the Reformed Orthodox in the 16th and 17th centuries. So they also kind of correlated their biblical interpretations with their systematic work. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. In um, 
confessional conservative reform circles, we think a fair bit about Princeton. But your work also looks at a fairly neglected Mercersburg theologian, whom we know in print typically as E.V. Gerhardt or Emanuel Gerhardt. Who was this fellow? And then we'll get to the relationships between Mercersburg and Princeton. Gerhard is best known for his contributions to philosophy and theology, and he played an important role in systemizing Mercer's book, Divinity. He was writing a two-volume work entitled Institutes of Christian Religion, and it was a very important work. In a way, he made an effort to write a Christocentric systematic in the tradition of mediating divinity. Yeah, this is a good opportunity to go back and touch on something before we come back to Gerhardt, because I promised. Tell us a little bit about Schleiermacher. So when we talk about mediating theologians, we're talking about people between one thing and another, and one of those poles is Schleiermacher. Quickly, who is he and why is he significant? Schleiermacher is known as the father of modern divinity, and I think he established a liberal theological path, and he brought the Copernican revolution to Christian religion, one that was as significant as Kant's innovation in philosophy. And it's interesting that he grew up in a pietistic home that was associated with the Moravian, a very strict pietistic community. So this is an interesting question. How does a good little Moravian boy raised in a pietist home become the father of liberal theology? Because in the home in which he was raised, his parents loved the Lord, they loved the Word, they believed the Bible, and that was never in question. But something happened to him when he went off to university. Yeah, what happened when he studied at a seminary of Barbie, he started to read secretly Immanuel Kant. Ah, there we go. (laughs) And what happened, it opened a new world for him. And to my knowledge, it was during this time, he wrote in 1789 a letter to his father where he started to doubt his Christian faith, in particular the deity of Christ and the atonement. Yeah, he really struggled with the atonement. Yeah, so this was some of the two key doctrines he struggled with. And he kind of said he cannot accept these teachings. And he'd also read Spinoza who was a pantheist, who said God is everything. And so between Kant and Spinoza and the other Enlightenment thinkers that he was reading, he really wasn't prepared. His pietist upbringing in the Moravians really wasn't equipping him to deal with this new thought. Do you think it's fair to say that he sort of collapsed? I'm not sure. I think he was just maybe wrestling with Kant, and I think much of his own work is a response to Kant. So this is what I'm trying to show in my book as well. And what happened after he studied at the seminary of Barbie, he went to the University of Halle, which was at this point already kind of influenced by rationalism, and there he came even more under the influence of enlightenment thinking. Okay. And by rationalism, we mean that the human intellect is the supreme authority over all things. Yes. So that's what we're talking about. Okay. So Schleiermacher really unleashes a revolution in Christian theology. He redefines the faith as really the quest to recover Jesus' religious experience. Yeah. I think Schleiermacher is a key figure between the old and the new, kind of in the turning point of the Enlightenment, and he kind of had to give a response. So I think he's one of the most influential theologians after John Calvin. Okay, and so after Schleiermacher, everyone has to do something with him, and some try to build a bridge between him and orthodoxy and those we call, and it's a, a loose group, 
but they're called mediating theologians. And one of those is in Mercersburg, which is a very interesting place in a variety of ways. And this is Gerhardt that we were talking about a moment ago. Tell us a little bit about Mercersburg as a movement first, and then we'll get back to Gerhardt. Mercersburg emerged as a movement in the 19th century in a small town in Pennsylvania. And some of the key figures were John Nevin and Philip Schaaf. Philip Schaaf was actually sent from Germany to help out in this small seminary. And he was also a very influential figure in transmitting German ideas to America. And they were closely associated with the German Reformed Church and they were kind of aligned with the Heidelberg Catechism. So, and Schaaf is a... Um a mild Hegelian. He's a German. In the 19th century, everyone, to some degree or other, is a Hegelian. And so he's famous for his church history, a multi-volume church history that people are still reading today. He's sort of the father, in many ways, of American church history. So his influence is enormous. And he becomes one of the leaders of this movement associated, as you say, with the what was then known as the RCUS, the Reformed Church in the United States. This is the German Reformed Church, which still continues today in a much smaller denomination. Much of what was was the RCUS ended up in the Evangelical and Reformed Church and then eventually in the United Churches of Christ. So associated with this movement is Schaff and the other is Nevin. And Gerhardt is a figure in this movement that doesn't get a lot of attention. Exactly, because he emerged later. I consider him like the Philip Melanchthon of this movement. He was the systemizer, while the others were more around doing some of the controversial issues when some debates were going on. He kind of came later along and he kind of wrote this major systematic work and Philip Schaff endorsed it and he kind of saw this connection between the mediating divinity and Gerhard. So how do Princeton and Mercersburg differ? Because they're two sort of poles or centers of thought among the Reformed in the United States in the 19th century. Actually, this is an exciting comparison because they share actually much in common a Reformed heritage and they were both very scholarly dedicated and they were both confessional and they kind of criticized American culture and revivalism. But in response to American culture, they used different sources. Mercersburg was using German idealism and Princeton, Scottish common sense realism. And it produced a lot of sparks, the controversy between the two, even though they have a lot in common, as you say. Hodge took one position, for example, on the Lord's Supper. Nevin, a rather different position, and they went back and forth yeah. on that. And interesting, it is John Nevin was originally actually educated at Princeton, and he was teaching while Hodge was in Germany. He was his substitute professor. If the reader wants to learn a little more about Nevin, there's a fine English language introduction by our own Daryl Hart. D.G. Hart has a nice biography on Nevin published a few years ago. So we have these mediating theologians, Hodge uh, interacting with them, the Mercersburg writers perhaps a little more sympathetic. They were more sympathetic to Schleiermacher and the mediating divinity. So this is what they then also adopted. And the Princetonians, they aligned themselves more with someone like Ernst Hengstenberg. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So the reader, again, can still see a fair bit of Hengstenberg. E.W. Hengstenberg is translated into English, I think you said something like 15 volumes of Hengstenberg. Not 15 volumes. There's one of his major works. It's four volumes, ah. uh, Old Testament Christology. Okay. Yeah. So that's perhaps the most famous one. That's the most famous one, yeah. And it was reprinted recently, I think, yeah. 
So it's one of the first things that I remember seeing when I began exploring Reformed Christianity was Hengstenberg. And he's actually quite orthodox in his theology. Yes, he's very orthodox. He was kind of bringing orthodoxy back to Germany. And he's a very neglected figure. One of the doctrines that you use as a test case, and you've already mentioned it relative to Schleiermacher, is the doctrine of the atonement. Mm -hmm. And so you look at different presentation, Hodges and Gerhards. What is it about the atonement that makes it so important? And what do you learn from that as a test case? I think the atonement is one of the key doctrines in the Christian faith. So, And we see it with Schleiermacher. He changed this key doctrine. He kind of argued that the atonement is rooted in the incarnation. So he changed this traditional doctrine. He didn't like the idea of substitution. Yeah, he rejected this whole substitution. As I said earlier, he already had doubts when he was young. And then in his systematic theology, he really reformulated the doctrine of atonement. What do we learn from this reformulation? What happens to Christianity under Schleiermacher's reformulation? I think it becomes more subjective. He kind of, you know, it's a more subjective approach of the atonement versus an objective yeah, where he rejects God's wrath and satisfaction. And so what matters really is your personal experience rather than what Christ traditionally had been said to have accomplished on the cross. Yeah, I mean, for him, when Christ entered the world through the incarnation, redemption occurred. Do you see any connections between what some of the mediating theologians, what Schleiermacher did, what some of the mediating theologians did, and what's happening in evangelicalism today? There's a lot of controversy about the atonement, and you have people openly writing that the atonement is a species of child abuse, cosmic child abuse, is what one writer said. It could be going back to Schleiermacher, some of these ideas, and especially this notion that doctrines need to be changed in light of a given situation. So it's kind of, you know, a cultural adjustment. And behind that is the notion that Christianity is really just an expression of our experience. So if our experience changes then our theology needs to exactly, change. Yeah. Which, of course, is what the liberals did, which is why, if the listener is wondering what happened to the old German Reformed Church or the old American Presbyterian Church, why are they the way they are? Well, this is part of the answer, isn't it? The influence of Schleiermacher and the mediation of those ideas to the Americans. So how did Hodge then, when he's here, how did he react to all this? Yeah, when he came back, actually the first lecture that he gave when he came back was on his experience in Europe. And he kind of analyzed the context and he described how scholars were creating the Enlightenment Bible and how religion was influenced by Kant. And he continued to engage with German scholars. In particular, he exchanged letters with Tolok and some other pietistic scholars. Where did Hodge himself come out on the atonement, for example? And how did he deal with what Schleiermacher had proposed? Actually, what happened, Hodge came very close to the view of Hengstenberg and in his own discussion of the atonement, interestingly enough, he was using many different German scholars to support his own view that emphasized vigorous satisfaction. So he was still holding to the old traditional atonement doctrine. But he buttresses it, supports it, by appealing to some of that excellent German scholarship. Exactly. He didn't go to Francis Turretin, but he used some of the scholars. This was kind of interesting that he often used some of the scholars to support his own orthodox views because he kind of realized that you need to have this support from this particular scholarship to defend your orthodoxy. 
So sometimes the expression that Hodge used that, you know, we're not teaching anything new here, and that's true in a sense that in substance they ended up where the Orthodox reform had been, but it's misleading if we think that it meant that they weren't actively engaging the world around them in a serious way. That's not true because Hodge was educated in one of the leading schools in Europe and it would have been odd if he would have come back with not having learned anything. <laughs> so it's kind of a very strange statement. And if you look at the Princetonians' work, they produced some major commentaries and they were in line. For example, Joseph Addison Alexander wrote commentaries basically abridging Hengstenberg's work. And now you're working on Machen. So uh, now not so much in the 19th century, but sort of the bridge between the 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, actually what I'm doing right now in Machen, it's more or less a collected works of some of his most important works. And how are you finding him relative to Hodge and some of the other things you've been reading to this point? I mean, I think Machen stands in the same tradition as Charles Hodge. And it's interesting, when he went to Germany, he was struggling more. He almost had a faith crisis when he was studying under Wilhelm Hermann. And Hermann was a very persuasive fellow, right? What was Hermann offering to the students that caused Machen to really struggle? It was also kind of more so a subjective approach. Yeah, it was something he was attracted to. Hermann is offering a vision of Christianity that emphasizes your personal experience yes. rather than the objective historic truths. Yeah. So he's recasting Christianity in a significant way. Machen loved his time in Germany, didn't he? Yes, he loved his time in Germany. And he kept also interacting with individuals from Germany. And he was also acknowledged by other German scholars. For example, Bultmann acknowledged his work. Oh, interesting. And we have some reviews from different countries. Yeah, especially the virgin birth was highly respected. Van Harnack interacted with his work on the virgin birth and was very appreciative. And at the turn of the 20th century, perhaps no one in the world is more authoritative or more widely read than Adolf von Harnack on the development of theology in the early church. Yeah. So that work, Machen's work defending the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ, was a really monumental piece of work. Yeah, it was a historic defense of the virgin birth. Yeah, And it's still kind of today important text. Yeah, if someone says, well, I don't believe the virgin birth, one of the first things you do is go back to Machen, right? Yeah. And you look at that. And also the origin of Paul's religion would be another major work in defending Christianity. Yeah. So that when he wrote in 1923, Christianity and Liberalism, he was really drawing on, in part, his firsthand encounter with Hermann and some of the other writers that he had heard in Germany. Yeah, the interesting thing is then what he saw, what happened in Germany, he noticed that some of the American liberals adopted the same idea. So he kind of was reacting to two fronts in Germany and also what he then encountered in America. Finally, you've been studying Hodge and Gerhardt and now Machen. How has that study affected you or changed you? Actually, what they teach the most is how to do rigorous scholarship and how to engage with different views and how not to put yourself in a corner, but deal with serious issues and scholarship. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.